Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Robinson, and today I'm joined by Rachel Washburn, Major General James Spider Marks, and Academy Securities Head of U.S. Rates Sales and Trading, Glenn Capello. In recent episodes, we've discussed the trade war with China, as well as different ways in which the United States and China asserts its influence in the developing world. Today, we're focusing on the Indo-Pacific region. This podcast was recorded on the heels of Secretary Pompeo's announcement of significant United States investment in that area. We've got a lot to talk about today. So, Rachel, could you please start us off? Thanks, Andy. General Marks, I'll pose the first question to you. Last week on our podcast, we teased this topic, talking from a perspective of China, how they do a development, how the United States does international development, and what are the conditions on that sort of investment. This week, Secretary Pompeo announced his Indo-Pacific strategy, which develops digital energy and infrastructure within a region that maybe we have kind of lost focus on or lost sight on. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are moving forward with this Indo-Pacific strategy. Thanks, Rachel. I, I need to tell you that, you know, the United States has never really lost sight of the significance of our engagement in the Indo-Pacific region, in the Northeast Asian region, or the greater Asian Pacific region. The challenge over the course of the last 18 years clearly has been we've been at war, and frankly, we will continue to be at war against a form of violent extremism that has taken our focus and primary allocation of resources into different regions of the world, yet we've never abandoned a focus or a priority look in terms of how to better engage in the Asian Pacific region. It's absolutely critical to our future that we continue. I think the previous administration indicated that they wanted to pivot to Asia. Frankly, I thought the term of pivoting to Asia was an acknowledgement that we at some point completely abandoned our interests in Asia when, in effect, what had happened is the United States truly had been diverted elsewhere in terms of its primary focus, but we've never really had to refocus or pivot back to Asia. It's always been front and center. But what has happened over the course of the last couple of decades, because of these competing interests, the United States now feels an obligation, and rightly so, to state as an important priority for the United States and our national security moving forward is a very strong emphasis in terms of our presence in Asia and our engagements in Asia. That has been made manifest primarily through our recent engagements to try to moderate the tensions on the Korean Peninsula and understanding that the only way to do that is through a very strong relationship with China. And as we know, any solution to North Korea goes through Beijing. So what Secretary Pompeo has done has really put a spotlight back on an effort that has really been in place for years, but now just needs what I call a real marketing kick to make sure that the world pays attention to what the United States is really doing, has done, and is going to continue to do in the Asia-Pacific region. So Secretary Pompeo's very specific emphasis is well-timed. I think it makes perfect sense, but I think it's naive of us to state that this is really the beginning of a new effort in the Asia-Pacific region, but really a continuation of a requirement that we've had and we've focused on this part of the world literally since post-World War II and a clear understanding 
that anything that happens in the Asia-Pacific region is going to have an engagement of China writ large, Japan writ large, our relationships on the peninsula, both North and South, and clearly Russia with its geographic presence. Some would say Russian diminishing engagement in that part of the world, but let's not fool ourselves. Russia still is very much a player in that part of the world. Well, General Marks, the uh, interesting thing is the market is also digesting that very sort of timeline that you talked about. Initially, with the conversations about trade tariffs that started a couple months back, you know, many people in the market thought that it would be a few months of trade rhetoric uh, to a possible new deal. You know, obviously, with uh, Jinping digging in, he can, I guess, since he's emperor for life. He's definitely showing resolve in his viewpoint on the current trade situation. He's passed and formed a handful of committees and programs that would basically allow him to support the infrastructure and various companies around the country that might be affected negatively by a trade war with the U.S. And so that's showing us signs, along with their unwillingness to speak with us on the trade side, that they are digging in for the long haul. Uh, Trump, on the other hand, has made several other moves, along with obviously Pompeo's recent conference and speech at the uh, Indo-Pacific conference this past week. So for us here in, on, in the U.S. rate spectrum, uh, we kind of feel that the trade war is just beginning, and this is sort of a multiple year, possibly even decade transition to sort of a new set of rules. Hey, Glenn, let me ask you a quick question. Is it fair to say that this is the, quote, beginning of a trade war, maybe starting with a few skirmishes and then moving into more of a full-scale engagement and the use of all those potential elements of power? Or do you see this as a continuation of policies that have been in place for quite some time, but it is now manifesting itself by way of the United States engaging more aggressively and with some degree of reciprocity? I would say that this is the beginning of something very new. Uh, never before we have we had a president like President Trump who's willing to engage, you know, sort of go straight for the jugular when it comes to disagreements and renegotiation style. Prior presidents for decades have sort of just placated China and have allowed the regime to sort of, you know, make their own rules as they go along. Uh, their entrance into the WTO, the World Trade Organization, was a major factor in including them at the table, yet all along prior to the entrance and then after their acceptance in the organization, they've continued to break and bend all, if not most, the rules. So this to me is a big turning point. It's, it's a sign that uh, the U.S. and hopefully its allies are going to take a much different approach to China in general as far as trade rules. Uh, so I believe this will be an ongoing factor in the markets and the uh, geopolitical insight that uh, you can provide us so that we can talk to our customers is going to be insightful and uh, very much appreciated for years to come. Do you think that, ba based on what you just said, Glenn, do you think Japan and the Republic of Korea might suffer some collateral damage as a result of a stronger U.S. policy on tariffs and trade vis-a-vis -vis China? because of the clear focus that Japan, Republic of Korea, China, Russia, and the United States has on North Korea and the concerns for its nuclearization and the potential for a new set of rules relative to North Korea based on the summit that just took place in Singapore. But 
My concern always goes back to Japan and the Republic of Korea maybe being overlooked and maybe ending up being on the short end of any type of engagement with China. If it's meant to punish China, if it's meant to be harder on China, the downside is that we might end up unnecessarily causing some damage in our relationships, both diplomatically and economically, with Japan and the Republic of Korea. What do you think about that? No doubt that the trade war and rhetoric that's going on between the USA and, and China will have collateral damage on North Korea and the relationship and possible progress of denuclearizing the peninsula. Uh, though I believe that is a monumental turn that we've actually gotten North Korea to the table and there is some dialogue, I think that's going to go a long way. But I also believe it's going to be years before we make real progress, especially now since trade wars have sort of entered the region. So uh, carrying the conversation a little bit further, so how does that affect our current status relative to uh, economically and in terms of engagement in markets with both Japan and the Republic of Korea? I think, if anything, a relationship with Japan is only going to grow stronger because of all these issues that are currently on the table. The North Korea situation obviously is very near and dear to Japan, and the progress we've made there I think has gone a long way to solidifying our lifelong relationships the way they have been with the United States and Japan. And then obviously the trade rhetoric that's coming out of the system at the moment is also strengthening our relationship with Japan. We both know that uh, it's a symbiotic relationship. We need Japan for sort of regional stability in the area, and Japan needs us for protection and economic uh, might. Uh, at the same time. So uh, I think it's a relationship that's going to only grow stronger. Obviously, there's going to be some fallout on both sides of that situation. North Korea, unfortunately, is probably going to take that fallout initially. But I think the U.S.-Japan relationship is uh, probably the best it's been in a long time. General Marks, to build off of what Glenn was saying, how does Washington incentivize or motivate our allies in the region, Japan, Australia, India, Singapore, nations that have like-minded values, how do we incentivize them to help essentially enable this, this new $113 million initial investment? I think there are really two ways that the United States immediately on the heels of any announcement that looks like this, and very specifically what Secretary Pompeo has just laid out, is two things. One is to provide security guarantees, and number two is to describe that there is a possibility as a result of these security guarantees that the initial investment will do nothing but grow and accelerate in everyone's benefit. So it starts with, as we understand, it starts with security guarantees that are based on current partnerships and alliances that exist in the region. Those have been tested and pushed and pulled before, but it's critical that all partners in the region understand that the United States, with this type of a focus and this type of an investment, wants to ensure that there is a positive upside. And that only happens if security exists as a precondition and a sustaining condition regionally so that commerce and the marketplace can really accelerate and grow. So that's, that's really number one. And then number two is, if number one, then growth will follow. And there, there will be an incentive for all nations to have an equally incentivized view in terms of how to engage and to provide an alternative, let's be frank, to Chinese intrusiveness, economic 
effort on the part of the Chinese has been their primary element of power to achieve influence globally. So they, they, they buy up their partnerships, they create servitude, they create dependency. If the United States can provide a legitimate alternative, then you have security guarantees and you have an incentive to engage at the local level with local partners in a way that becomes very, very helpful to national security interests that are shared within the region. And the offshoot of all of this could be a real upside, which means we don't necessarily have to be in a competitive position with the Chinese. You know, a rising tide will raise all boats, and there's no reason that the United States and China cannot, cannot find common ground and can agree on areas where their engagement and U.S. engagement can provide those security guarantees and then can provide the safety net for all nations that want to participate to, to jump in quite aggressively in, in, into the marketplace because of the conditions that have been established. The big example of that clearly, I think, are two. One is North Korea. If security guarantees are in place in North Korea, North Korea's economy is going to grow. We can talk about all the nuclearization issues, denuclearization, aspirational goal, growth in different markets, regime, longevity, et cetera. All of those can be discussed. But if security guarantees are in place for Pyongyang and for the Kim regime, then the economic growth in the near term and sustainable will be quite phenomenal. And the second example I would use is in Indonesia. It's a real opportunity with a presidential election coming up next summer in 2019 for the United States to present itself as an alternative to Chinese engagement in Indonesia and the competition that's taking place there. But there might be some common ground that we can find. That would be a wonderful way to go. And again, U.S. influence and the national security interests shared within the region can be realized. Well, General Marks, you touched on a, a few great points. Yes, first and foremost, uh, the $113 million amount that Pompeo spoke about is really just an indication that the U.S. is committed to the region, and that number will grow exponentially as the pathway gets cleared. And two, yes, we provide a much more stable, secure pathway for other countries to, to do work with us. Keep in mind, you know, when dealing with China, you're dealing with both the combination of the state and with their companies. Most strategic companies are 40% owned by the state and obviously controlled much more closely than that. Uh, so we provide not just an alternative economically, but we provide an alternative that's much more secure as we're going to bring what is the true might of the U.S., which is a combination of innovation and the economic might that the individual private companies of the U.S. bring to the table. You're not going to be dealing partnership necessarily with the United States. Yes, they'll be clearing the legal pathway for this to happen, but you'll ultimately be coming into a conversation, negotiation, a deal with the superpowers of the companies of the United States, with Google, with Microsoft, with Coke, you know, with the GMs, GEs of the world. So uh, I think it's a very powerful alternative to the China One Belt, One Road solution. And I think long as we stay focused on the prize, which is effectively spreading democracy and uh, the sort of our way of thought process, I think that we're going to be very successful in the region. We just have to realize it's going to take time, uh, not quarters, months or quarters or years, but years and decades. I got to tell you, Glenn, that's really well stated. Um, and that's our challenge is the United States never really takes a, a long view 
in terms of our engagement, at least in terms of our market presence. It's very difficult for us when you've got a quarterly reporting system, which I think is the bane of our economic growth. Let me just throw that editorial comment out there. But if we could take a much longer view, we'd be in a far better place. Now, to follow up on what you just said, the key thing in, in my mind in terms of dealing with China is that bear in mind that every Chinese corporation is endorsed by the government in some way, and there is a direct link from those Chinese corporations back to the government, and that affects the vulnerability of our intellectual property and how we engage. So when you increase your presence with GE or with Microsoft or with Google or with Starbucks or with fill-in-the-blank company from the United States and a desire to have that global presence, when you deal with a Chinese entity, a like Chinese firm, your information is going straight back to Beijing and straight back to the ruling party and straight back to how they govern. These Chinese companies, let's be frank, are incredibly talented intelligence collection assets for the Chinese government. It's a big concern of mine, but we can work our way around it when we enter into these engagements with our eyes wide open. So that'd be a caution I'd throw out there, but I would hope that wouldn't necessarily dampen how or what type companies engage, but it might in fact guide how those companies engage with Chinese counterparts or more broadly in the Chinese market. Yeah, absolutely. I would 100% agree. And there's already examples of sort of the rough dealings that might take place once you do enter into some of these uh, agreements with the Chinese companies. Sri Lanka port is obviously a, a good example where China really uses the one belt, one road solution as a way to infiltrate the countries around the region. Uh, you cut a deal, you come in, you build a port, you build a bridge, you build a system. At some point, you know, something goes wrong, meaning obviously that the, the country can't afford the payments. And then lo and behold, it's now China's property, the new port, both for shipping commercial and shipping for, the, for their naval presence. Uh, and that's one of the questions I had for you, General, is the Chinese Navy. Obviously, much different than it was five years ago and completely different than it was 10 years ago. You throw in the South China Seas and their new, uh, I, I would call it army base, uh, there in the, in the middle of the sea, but how do we now deal with that aspect of uh, the South China Sea where you have trillions of dollars of commerce operating through that strait and just recently we sent a couple destroyers through there uh, for the first time in many, many years. Any insight on what's next in that region around this issue? It's easy to say that the Chinese are not going to back away from their engagement in the South China Sea and their military presence. Past administrations have seen what the Chinese have been doing, and we've done nothing to stop or alter their presence and their growth. Now, historically, there have been contested islands in the Paracels and the Spratleys for, for decades in that part of the world. But what we've seen with the Chinese clearly is the actual growth of some of these islands and the development of these islands beyond natural barriers and the creation of what you rightly have indicated are the militarization of those islands to the Chinese advantage. So it puts the Chinese military, quote, over the horizon into a blue water capacity. So the United States and the global community simply needs to recognize that those islands are not going away and nor will we in any way militarily challenge the Chinese presence. It would be foolhardy for us to do that. 
We need to acknowledge that they exist. We need to acknowledge that they're probably going to exist for the long haul. But what we can do is we can say, look, let's stop this activity right now. Let's freeze what you've done. Let's acknowledge what you've done. And as a result of what you've done, let's engage in a way that might work to our advantage. I'm of the opinion and have been for quite some time that the U.S. Navy and the Chinese Navy can cooperate in that part of the world. And in fact, we have ongoing exercises where the Chinese and multiple nations have engaged in very friendly exercises, sea passage, naval operations in that part of the world. Just this year, we disinvited the Chinese from participating. It's a very clear message and appropriate, I would say, as the first step in terms of acknowledging a presence that they have. We have both carrots and we have sticks in order to engage with other nations around the globe. That was the use of a stick saying, we don't want your participation in these exercises. Yet we can come back and say, look, we put you in the penalty box. We want you out of the penalty box. We want you to be a part of these exercises because you exist and you're not going to go anywhere. You're a permanent presence in this part of the world. It's new, it's unique, but it's the direction that they're, that they're moving in. I think what's really important for us to recognize is the spheres of influence that we've historically perceived nations to have in different parts of the world right now is being challenged. China is much more aggressive, it's expeditionary, where the United States and other nations have operated in an acceptable fashion. That will continue, but it will be challenged by a new participant very aggressively, and it might be in areas where we don't even expect it. But that could occur and is occurring in South China Sea, which is a little more a regional focus for the Chinese. But I wouldn't be surprised at all, as we've stated before, to see the Chinese military in places like the Mediterranean, even in the Atlantic, certainly in the Indian Ocean. So it's important for us to acknowledge where we are relative to your point about the Chinese being much more expansive and to embrace it, see it as an opportunity and use it to our advantage. Well, I think that's great uh, with that insight because it definitely makes me feel a bit more comfortable with what's going on in the region. I know these conversations uh, will help me have a more fruitful thought process with my customers. It's definitely this whole region, along with the trade wars with China, the South China Sea militarization, and of course the One Belt, One Road, a new initiative. You know, uh, for, for I think a long time from now, we're going to be talking about this very issue. Uh, and it's great to have a uh, sort of on the pulse uh, thought process to it. One of the last questions I have is, you know, how do you, in a sense, go to the smaller countries in the area, you know, Vietnam's of the world, and appeal to them? I mean, obviously, Pompeo's speech kind of opened the door. Uh, but what do you think the next step is? in this process and so that if you start to see it happening we could see that as a positive response economically we have to make sure that our friends in the region understand that they remain friends the united states is consistent in its policy and its efforts to work together to share values to have a similar view of what global order looks like and to be a consistent partner an enduring friend so Japan, Republic of Korea, Australia, New Zealand, our presence in Singapore, our burgeoning relationships in Thailand, our troubled yet historically very favorable relationship in the Philippines, the changes that are taking place in Malaysia, the potential changes that are taking place in Indonesia, the historical challenges obviously that we've had with Vietnam, but the fact that Vietnam is now in a, in a far different place than it 
than it was 40 years ago when we were in the midst of a conflict there and the great sacrifices that we've all made in that part of the world. So it's, it's important that our, that our friends realize that we are a permanent presence in the Pacific part of the world and that our intent there is to remain a presence and to ensure that our shared values remain shared values. That means, that means we have an obligation and a clear challenge to identify where the competition is and determine if there's an opportunity for cooperation. That's the hardest thing we have to do, yet it's well within the realm of our leadership's ability to recognize and to execute to our advantage. Let's not forget, our national security interests must be met. That's first and foremost. Within that part of the world, we've figured out over some very challenging years and multiple changes in leadership and the context of our engagement, how to do that. We need to keep doing that to our advantage. Thank you so much to Major General Spider Marks, Rachel Washburn, and Glenn Capillo for contributing to this conversation today. Academy Securities loves sharing this type of content with our clients and friends. In fact, this week, Spider's going to be in New York City visiting clients with us and Lieutenant General Brett Hernandez, the first commander of Army Cyber Command, will be visiting clients with us in Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. This is your host, Andy Robinson, from Academy Security's Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. Thank you so much for your time listening to us today, and we look forward to sharing with you again next week.